Thanks for singing, and uh, good to have you here tonight again. Uh, we're in the middle of a study in uh, the New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. So if you have a Bible with you, you're welcome to open it up uh, in terms of that letter. If you don't know where it is, it's right after Galatians, right before Philippians. The text is also going to be printed up here on the screen for you to use if you wish. So what we'll do is I'll read the passage for us. As we make our way consecutively through this letter tonight, we get to verse uh, 14 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 14, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. So 3, 14 through 21. I'll read the text and then I'll pray for us. And then we'll hear from God's word tonight. So let me read for you, dear friends, tonight from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. <clears throat> for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through, the, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this portion of his word. Father, Again, tonight we gather as people who are needy. Father, tonight we gather here <clears throat> coming from all sorts of split places spiritually. Father, some of us have had uh, very difficult weeks. We've struggled to see you in the details and the ordinary of our life. Some of us perhaps haven't thought about you at all this week. We've been so busy with the other things that demand our time and attention. Some of us, Father, might have spent a lot of time with you this week in prayer and in Bible study, and yet so often it, it sort of feels like a farce, to be honest. It feels like just routine, and we need to hear from you and meet with you and know that you're here with us in love and in grace. And Lord, no matter where we're coming from tonight, we ask that you would help us to believe that you, that you are here, that you are good, that you care for us, your people, no matter what we've experienced this week and no matter what is coming for us in the next days, Lord, you are a God of grace and you are in charge. And Father, we struggle to believe that. And so we ask, we ask that by your spirit, you would give us the strength to comprehend and to know that these things are true, that the love of Jesus is far deeper than we can even begin to imagine. Father, we don't really get this. If we did get it, we would stop living the way we're living. And so we ask that you would help us to get it. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you that through it we learn about you and about your plan for humanity. We thank you that through it we learn about the grace that you have shown us in the Redeemer, Jesus. And, Father, if we're not familiar with the Bible tonight or if we've been reading it for our whole lives, I pray that this part of it would be clear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We're working through Ephesians. As I mentioned tonight, we hit this just amazing text, um, in my opinion. And uh, if you notice, as I read it, there's a lot in there about strength. There's a lot about power. Um, and as I was reading over this text, I had a memory that probably I've suppressed for most of my adult life come up. Um, when I was a young man, a, a child actually, um, 
growing up in the church in West Texas, in my youth group, one time we went to a, a gathering of a bunch of churches in the city, and uh, there meeting us was a group called the Power Team. Any of you guys ever heard of the Power Team? Mm -hmm. yes. If you haven't, God bless you. Um, power Team is a group of Christian weightlifters, bodybuilders, power lifters. And if you're, if you're not really a Christian or not sure why we need Christian weightlifters, the answer is we don't. We don't need Christian weightlifters. But this is a Christian weightlifting group that does revival sort of things. And so I had this memory flashing in my mind this week because I was getting ready for this sermon. And uh, so I went on the internet and Googled power team. And what do you know? The power team's still around, man. They're doing their, I'm thinking about bringing them to Christ. They're doing their, uh, well, they promise growth if they come. They're doing their, um, their, their gig. They're doing their routine. And I remember as a kid seeing them and just thinking, man, those guys are really, really large. Like, those are big human beings. Um, they're lifting a lot of weight on those barbells. What, what does this have to do with Jesus again? And, and that was probably one of the better questions I had as a young, you know, 14-year-old kid. Again, the answer is nothing. Um, and, and so they did their little weight routine, and then the guy would get up and give sort of a motivational talk. You've probably seen familiar things. They do high school, you know, conferences and things like that. And the, the key, as you might imagine, of this guy's motivational talk was that... Um, Strength is what's going to get you by. And they would work in this little analogy between, you know, we want you to be strong and believe strongly, et cetera, et cetera. Just like our physical strength is able to lift these weights. If you are strong in your faith, you'll be able to, you'll be able to move mountains for Jesus, right? Um, there's a lot of really bad, frankly, things about that. And one of the great ironies about the power team and their whole world, and I'm, I'm sure they're brothers in Christ and they have great intentions and a lot of good things have come from it, but it's, it's almost exactly the opposite of what Paul's talking about here and other places when he talks about strength, particularly the kind of strength that God wants us to have. When Paul, in the New Testament, talks about strength, when he prays like he does here for his people, the church of Jesus, to have power, to have strength, he's not praying for them so much to have, to have strength to overcome the struggles in their life or for them to be strong enough to move uh, the mountains or the molehills that they seem to be facing at that time in their particular circumstances. Really what Paul is praying for is that they would, that they would have the strength to see Jesus' strength. <laughs> he's, actually, uh, he's actually praying that, that we would have a strength to stop thinking about our strength. He's asking that we would have a strength, rather, to start focusing on the strength of Jesus. That's right. um, a strength to believe that Jesus is strong. And really, that's quite different from the way that we are used to thinking. And, and the reason it's different is because it's not the way our minds normally operate. We like to think that we're the heroes in our own stories, that we're the ones that need to be strong. But the gospel tells us again and again that we need to remind ourselves every day that the way we win, the way we have victory, the way we grow is not by self-reliance, but by reliance upon Jesus in his strength. That's right. We forget that. We don't believe that. And so Paul here is asking God that his church would remember that more and more and more. If you remember last week, at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, Paul starts to pray. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he gets sidetracked. Remember that? This is very typical in Paul. He sort of loses his train of thought for a moment and goes on a 13-verse hiatus telling them about his mission and his ministry as an apostle, as a guy who saw Jesus 
in his resurrected form and then went to tell the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of the world, about Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Now, in verse 14, Paul gets back to his original prayer that he started all the way back in verse 1. And this prayer sort of summarizes the first three chapters of Ephesians, which we're getting to the end of tonight. And it's just one of the great prayers in the Bible. And as I just talked about, it really is a prayer that we would have a certain kind of strength, uh, a prayer that we would know the strength that God wants to give us. But the fact that Paul's praying this for us implies that it's something we need. It's something we don't typically have and normally possess. And so Paul's asking God to give us more and more of it. So as we look at this prayer, just for a few minutes tonight, I want to show you two things from the text, Um, two things I believe God has for us. Two things I want you to see about the kind of strength that God wants to give you. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you're facing. God wants to give you a strength first that is spiritual. A strength that is spiritual. And second, a strength to see Jesus. He wants to give you a strength that is spiritual and a strength to see Jesus. Okay, that's where we're headed. So let me show you first that Paul prays that God would give the Ephesians, that God would give us a strength that is spiritual. So he begins his prayer here. In verses 14, 15, 16, by addressing God the Father, and then he moves on to ask that, look there, according to the riches of his glory, verse 16, God may grant you to be strengthened with power, big strength words, big might words, big power words, through his spirit, Holy Spirit. So it's a, it's a spiritual strength that Paul is asking God to give them, Okay. And I mean really two things by a spiritual strength. When I say God wants you to have a strength that is spiritual, I mean first, he wants you to have a strength that is capital S spiritual. That is from the Holy Spirit. Um, Really what Paul is saying here is that the way that believers in Jesus are empowered to live just the regular normal Christian life is through the ministry and activity of God's spirit. And that's the only way. The only way you are going to be strong, the only way you're going to have transformation, the only way you're going to be more and more equipped by God's grace to deal with the things you're facing is when the Spirit comes and enables you and empowers you. Now, there's examples of that all over the Bible. One of my favorites is the example of Jesus' disciples. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, and if you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, the disciples of Jesus are often, they're the encouraging part of the Gospels because they never get it. And when you don't get it in life and when you make, up, make a mistake and mess up again and again and again, you can go read the Bible and read about Peter and, and think, man, Peter makes me feel better about myself, right? <laughs> These guys, they're sort of presented in the story as foils That's to right. Jesus, right? The disciples never get it. They're bumbling. They're fumbling. They don't understand, even though Jesus explicitly tells them, right, I am going to die. And in three days, I'm going to be alive. And they say, what? Huh? Can we have some bread, please, Jesus? We're starving. Uh, They're a lot like us. So those are the disciples, and then in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you get to Acts, and you see the same guys, 12 disciples, and you see them in a completely different light. They're not the fumbling, bumbling idiots that we come accustomed to in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They are like the studs spiritually. They have power. They're out there healing the sick and... um, making the lame walk and saying in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk, and they're going into prison and the chains are, it's just insane. And you're like, I could never do that. But that's not why Acts was written to discourage you. But the point for now, though, is what is it that changed the disciples from the fumbling, bumbling spiritual Neanderthals to the power studs that they seem to be in Acts? It's the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read that the Spirit comes down and fills them, and when he fills them, a difference is made. They are strengthened. 
They are empowered. And so when Paul prays here for you to have power and strength that is spiritual, he's asking that the Holy Spirit would come and enable you to believe more and more of what he says in verse 17, that Jesus would dwell in our hearts through faith, that we are rooted and grounded in love. So God wants you to have a strength that is wholly spiritual. But he also wants you to have a strength that is spiritual, lowercase s. Look at the text. He says at the end of 16, he wants you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your, literally, in your inner man, in your inner being. So when he says he wants you to be strengthened spiritually, he means he wants the Holy Spirit to come and enable you, but he also means that the spirit is going to come to your spirit, to your inner being. When, when the Bible uses that word, it refers to, it refers to the real you, uh, who you really are on the inside. The best one-word summary of what Paul means here is when the Bible uses the word heart. Uh, when he says he wants you to be strengthened in your inner being, he's saying literally that he wants the seat of your life, the, the throne room of your emotions and psychology and will to be changed by the Spirit. Okay, So Paul, when he's praying here, is asking that the Holy Spirit would come and change these people from the inside out. Now, here's something that's really important that I want you to listen to. Listen, there is nothing, notice, look at the text. There is nothing in this text about the outward circumstances that Paul or the Ephesians that he is initially writing to were facing. That's right. Paul doesn't say, now he could have prayed this, this would have been a great prayer, but he doesn't say, dear Jesus, please let me get out of this prison cell in Rome so I can go do more evangelism and plant more churches. He doesn't pray that. And he doesn't pray for this young Ephesian church plant that's probably being persecuted. He doesn't pray, dear Jesus, please help these Ephesian Christians to do better um, when they face persecution. He doesn't pray for those things. And it's not because those things are illegitimate. He doesn't pray for those things. He doesn't pray, to put it in a word, for our outer lives because he understands the utter priority of our inner lives. Amen. You see, the Bible um, fundamentally wants to see change happen on the inside before the outside. Paul, I think, proves here the absolute priority of the inner life over the outer life. When you're strengthened, you see, by the Spirit to believe that Jesus dwells in your hearts by faith, what happens is that your outward circumstances no longer dominate you. Um, Listen, if your inner life is strong, um, your outward life doesn't matter nearly as much. You see that here? Mm -hmm. um, you can have a strong outward life, however. You can be doing great on the outside. Everybody looks at you and says, what a man, that's amazing. I wish I could be like him or I could be like her. But you're just shattered right. on the inside. And if that's the place you find yourself in tonight, you need to know that it's not going to last. The priority is on the inner life and not the outer life. There's a famous preacher, a British preacher from the 20th century. His name is David Martin Lloyd-Jones. You should read his stuff. Just stop whatever else you're reading and read him. Just trust me on that one. Um, you don't really have to do that. That was me being exaggerating, but he is great. And he talks about this in his commentary of Ephesians. And I just want to read you this, this little quote that he had. It struck me this week. He said, the ultimate trouble with the non-Christian, and I, I really don't think he's referring just to people that don't believe Jesus, but but to Christians who don't get this. The, right. ultimate, the ultimate trouble with the non-Christian is that he knows nothing of the inner being. 
Lloyd-Jones says. His whole life is bounded by what he is aware of. That is his only and his whole life. He has no inner being to retreat into. He is completely dependent upon the circumstances of his outer life. He lives in one realm only. So when he is in trouble, he falls back on psychology or drugs or some other partially helpful trick. Do you know what it is, he asks, to retreat into your inner being? It's one of the most fantastic blessings you could ever know. Paul's praying here for a certain kind of strength to come to you. And it's not a strength that's going to make you be able to bench 450 like the power team. It's not a strength that's going to make other people look at you and say, wow, what a spiritual dynamo. It's a strength, rather, where inwardly you will be able to know that Jesus dwells in your hearts. And when you have that sort of strength, when your inner man is firm and strong, the outward circumstances diminish in their domination over you. God wants you to have a strength that is spiritual. Spiritual as in from the Holy Spirit and spiritual as in for your spirits. Make sense? Secondly, God wants you to have a strength to see Jesus. He wants you to have a strength to see Jesus. As he moves on here in the text, he also asks that these Ephesians may have another kind of strength. Look at verse 18. You see the word there again. Continuing the, the prayer. That they may have strength. Okay? And remember, he's used all these power words. Power, might, strength. Riches of his glory. And this is classic Paul. If you read his letters, all you'll see he does this a lot. He's building it up, building it up, building it up, building it up. It's like a rock song, you know, where it builds up to the ballad before the drums come in and the bass kicks in and boosh, they just rock it, right? That's exactly what Paul's doing here. Only you probably think he's building you up for the power team, you know, so you could get roid rage and lift. That's a huge dumbbell. But that's, that's not what Paul's doing. He's saying, I want you to have strength. I want you to have power. I want you to have energy. I want you to have dynamism. I want you to have passion to comprehend. I want you to have vigor and strength and power to know. You see the words there? I'm not making this up. Look in the text. Strength to comprehend, to, to grasp with your mind and your heart with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know you need strength you need power to know the love of Jesus okay um, he's not asking that they'll have strength to, to make it in life on their own he's asking they would have the strength to continue to look away from their own lives to the life of Jesus that's right. you see that that's right. listen do you believe that that's enough do you believe that that's the only strength you need? I, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it right now and preach it to you, but I don't really believe it every day. And, and if we did and if I did, our lives would look different. And that's why Paul's praying for it, because he got that. Do you believe that the real strength you need in your life is the strength to truly grasp the deep, deep love of Jesus Christ for you? Listen, the way... The way for you to change, this, this is central to who we are at Christ Church. If you want to know what Christ Church is, this is what we're about. The way to change, the way to grow, the way to experience transformation, the way to overcome sin and be more like Jesus is to more and more develop a vision for the love that Jesus has for you. And I'm, so I can't resist. I, I, we're going to camp out here for just a second. Because these are unbelievable verses. They're 
there are some of the best verses in the Bible, in my opinion. They're in verses 18 and 19. And so I just want, I want us to see tonight, as we look at this text, I want to see tonight how deep Jesus' love is for us. Notice 18, Paul says, that we need the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know, to know the love of Christ, you know what he says next, that surpasses knowledge. He wants you to know something that, in a sense, is unknowable. He wants you to know something that you're never going to know fully. Side note, uh, the reason heaven is eternal is because it's going to take you forever to know the surpassing love of Jesus. The reason heaven lasts forever, you know, if you, when I was a kid and I heard that, I thought, man, I'm going to get bored singing on clouds with harps. I'm gonna, that's not heaven. We're going to do a sermon series on that at some point. The reason heaven's going to take forever is because it's going to take us forever to comprehend the depths of Jesus' love. And Paul says here, I want you to know the height and the breadth, the, the breadth of Jesus' love. You know, that's, that's probably referring to the idea that, this idea, you know, Jesus' love is so broad that there is no person, there is no person that it's beyond its reach. Jesus' love is so broad that people from every tribe and tongue and nation are welcome to it, by the way. Jesus' love is so broad, broad that, listen, it doesn't matter what you've experienced in your life. It doesn't matter the pain you felt. It doesn't matter the family you were born into. It doesn't matter the tragedies that have befallen you. You cannot escape the broad love of Jesus. Jesus' love is, is so high. <laughs> it's so high. I think Paul's thinking here about um, Jesus' love is, is so high that, that it's going to take us to a place that we can barely begin to imagine now. You know, he says in 1 John 3, the Bible does, that it does not, what we are going to be has not yet appeared, you know, but we will know we will be like him because we're going to see him as he is. Uh, Jesus' love, I think Paul's thinking about this, is, is so high that he wants to take us to a place where we are enjoying the same things that he enjoys. You know, if, when you're in love, you marry folk, when you were younger and engaged in dating, and you would go somewhere without your spouse. Maybe you wanted a trip or a vacation or somewhere, took a holiday without your spouse, and, and you thought, this is great. I love the Eiffel Tower. It's beautiful, but it's just not that great because my, my significant other isn't here with me. You, you just can't enjoy things as deeply as you would otherwise enjoy them if, if this person was, was with you. That's what, it, that's what it feels like when you're falling in love. And Jesus is saying here that he loves us to such a height that he is going to show us what it is like to love the way he loves. Um, he says there in verse 19 that we're going to be filled with, with all the fullness of God himself. That is how high the love of Jesus is for us. His love, listen, listen, his love is so long. The love of Jesus for you is so long that you can never outrun it. His love is more prodigal than your sin. Um, your rebellion and your straining and your wanderings, listen, these things... Um, they can never take you out of the range of the pursuing love of Jesus. Do you know that? That's what Paul's praying that we would see. There will, there will never be in our lives a single infinitesimal second where we are beyond the reach of him. There will never be one iota of time where he is not rabidly, ferociously pursuing us with his love. Jesus' love is so deep. It's so deep that it's completely unassailable and unavoidable. 
There's nothing that you have done. And there's nothing that you could ever do that is beyond his ability to forgive. Jesus' love for you is so deep that there's nothing you can do to change it. You cannot affect in any way his delight in you. He smiles when he thinks of you, and there's nothing you could do that will ever wipe the smile off of his face. That's how deep the love of Jesus is. It's unconditioned. Most of us have never known a love like that. It's, it's not dependent upon our returning love to him. His love for us will not change when we let him down. He loves us more than we love our sin. Amen. It's unconquerable and unchangeable and unassailable. Listen, listen. There is nothing in your life more important than that you know that that is true. He delights in you at this very moment through faith in Christ. But Paul knows and God knows that we forget that, that we fail to believe that, and that is the problem. The problem with most of us is that we know a lot of, we know a lot of biblical doctrine, but we haven't yet experienced the fullness of its power. C.S. Lewis talks about, I can't remember which book this is, they all kind of blend together in my mind, um, but he has some point in his writings where he talks about uh, the difference between having a map of the English countryside and experiencing the English countryside. And he says, you know, you need a map to find your way here, to find your way there, to get around, to plot your course, to plan your time, to enjoy your days to the fullest. You're going to need a map. But just staring at a map of the English countryside is a far different thing from driving up and down the countryside and experiencing its power and its beauty and its glory. Oftentimes, we just stop with looking at the map. You know? Instead of going on the journey of experiencing God in his grace and in his love to a deeper and deeper degree so that we are being filled with the fullness of God, part of your problem is that functionally you just sit in the car and stare at the map. And you never put your foot on the gas. You never grow in your understanding of Jesus because you don't really get how much he loves you. You know, most of you have been taught most of your life that your greatest problem is that you don't love God enough. That is not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is that you don't yet believe how much God loves you. And that's why Paul's asking here for God to give us the kind of strength that will enable us to see Jesus' strong love, to see it and comprehend it in, in an experiential and intimate way. He's, he's asking God to help us understand what is impossible to fully understand. The love of Christ for you and I want you to see that when you begin to understand that, you will change. And listen, only then, only then will you change. Only when you see the love of Christ for you, will, will, you, will you stop uh, having prejudice, prejudice and, and arrogance and superiority, just to take one example. You know, because when you're arrogant and when you're proud, you are, you're really quite insecure. When I'm proud, I'm quite insecure, and I'm looking for something that I can one-up. For someone that I can at least say I'm better than them in that. But when you understand how much Jesus loves you, you can stop playing that game. You can know that you're utterly secure in the love that Jesus has for you and that it really doesn't matter if you're any better than anybody else because we're all the same. We're all broken. 
desperately in need of grace, and we all have been given free access to the love of God. When you understand how much Jesus loves you, your prejudice and your superiority begin to diminish. When you understand how much Jesus loves you, your, your shame and your guilt begin to vanish. Some of you right now cannot get past things that have happened to you in your past. Either things that have been done to you that cause you shame and deep remorse and all sorts of messy brokenness, or things that you've done that cause you guilt and pain and heartache, things that you would never tell anyone and have never told anyone. You'd zip them in a bag and stuff them in the dark recess of your heart. When you begin to understand how much Jesus loves you, you can unzip the bag and bring it out and say, this is really how bad I am. This is really what has been done. The vase of my life has been shattered, and I can't put the pieces together. But guess what? Jesus can. And he loves you enough to do it for you. When, when you really get, listen, when you really get how much Jesus loves you, your self-pity begins to go away. Amen. You, you know, self-pity really is just the opposite side of the coin of pride. It's still utterly self-centered. It's just a depressed self-centeredness rather than a proud self-centeredness. And it's not wrong from time to time to feel bad about things that are happening in your life. That's very different from just this constant self-pity. I can't believe, woe is me, blah, 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 zip it, shut up, blah, right? That's what we want to do to ourselves and to others that we see in that life. But guess what? When you really begin to see how much Jesus loves you, you'll understand that he expresses to you constantly a true and healthy and holistic form of pity. <laughs> a form of pity where he says, yes, you are messed up. Yes, you are sinful, but yes, I was willing to die for you. I love you that deeply. It secures your identity. When you understand how much Jesus loves you, you begin to understand and change, even in the midst of horrible suffering. Now, I'm getting to know a little bit about some of you, and I know a lot about myself, and I know that all of us are going to suffer. I know that life is going to bring us pain, and I know that as I look into your eyes, each person in this room is experiencing it to some degree or another right now, and if you aren't, just wait a while, it will come. That's right. Listen, you need to know that your suffering is not good, it is bad, but your suffering is not purposeless. Think about it this way, if you knew everything that God knows, you would look at your suffering and think that was worth it. If if you knew how deeply Jesus loves you, you would be able to trust him when things don't go your way and your life spirals out of control and your suffering, although not pleasant and not fun, is purposeful. And as Paul says and Peter says, might even be joyful. Those things only happen, listen, those things don't happen by your self-effort. They don't happen when you become a member of the spiritual power team. Those things happen when you have the kind of strength that God wants you to have, the kind of strength that enables you to see his ever-pursuing love. Do you want that kind of strength? God, I do. I want that for Christ Church. I want to close with this. Um, I am not a poet, but this is a poem um, that I came across this week via J.R.R. Tolkien, of all things. Um, shocker, I'm sure as you get to know me, you'll know that's often the case. Um, this is a poem by a guy named Francis Thompson, who was a, a Catholic believer in the early 20th century, and it's called The Hound of Heaven. Some of you might have heard of this poem. And by the way, The Hound of Heaven is God. 
And it, it's a poem all about his restless pursuit of us and his love. And, and here's the first 15 lines. And this isn't the easiest thing to listen to, but uh, as far as it's not simple, but it's beautiful to listen to it. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vista hopes I sped and shot precipitated, adown to titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than defeat. All things betray thee who betrayest me. What he's saying there in that last line is that the only place you're going to find the love and the life that you're looking for is in Jesus and his love. And when you look for it anywhere else, you will be betrayed. God longs for us to believe that that is true. And when you begin to believe that that is true, you begin to experience the power of the gospel instead of just staring at the road map at the side of the road. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. And uh, this text, Lord, is remarkable in uh, its power and the intimate language with which Paul prays for his church. And because this text is inspired, because you wrote the words exactly you wanted to be written through Paul's pen, we, we know that this is the way you feel, Lord, that what you want for us is to see how much Jesus loves us. You don't want us to change the world or to conquer our own demons, or to win the world for Jesus. Yes, you want those things, but you know because of your wisdom that the only way those things are going to happen is when we first have the strength to see the deep, deep love of Jesus, when we are able to survey the cross, when we're able to survey the cross on which Jesus died, when we're able to grasp and comprehend the depth and the height and the breadth and the length of the love of Jesus for sinners. God, help us to believe that gospel. Help us to be transformed by its power. Help this church to be a people who herald and proclaim that truth fearlessly and boldly because we are content in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And Lord, we need your grace because tomorrow morning we're going to wake up having forgotten much of this power that we see in this part of your word. And so we ask that you would help us by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand and sing of our Lord's great love for us. We're going to sing